with you. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mark, and I was here from 2011 to 2016, got to know some of you during that time, and then I've been in the Midwest the, uh, the past couple years. And so two quick stories in the Midwest. One, the church was very different out there. Two, the weather was very different out there. Okay, as far as the church goes, I, I went from a, a, a big church here at, at Compass to a church of maybe 300, 400 people, and so I was the other pastor on staff. There were two pastors, a senior pastor and myself. And so if there was like any sort of thing that needed to happen around the church campus, I was pretty much the guy to make it happen. And one time, so there's this basement there. And so the church had a basement and there's this like storm gutter. You have to have like an escape hatch out of the basement legally, something like that. A cat had fallen in the storm drain, which is like this 10 foot long ditch that's like, I don't know, three feet, three feet deep. Uh, that's, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, it's like three feet this way, I don't know, 10 feet in the ground, 10 feet this way. There's a cat in there and it can't get out. And so someone comes to my office and like, Mark, there's a, uh, there's a cat in, this, in the storm drain. And I was like, great, let's leave it in there until it dies. Uh, if you know me, if you know me, that, that's kind of my, like, what would, be the, what would be the best course of action here for society and for the advancement of the gospel? Well, it's like right past the stairwell. So all the little kids, when they're going to class, they would see the cat progressively getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And then like on the ground, you know, it'd be a, it'd be a long, morbid death. I didn't opt to watch the cat slowly die. I hopped down in the storm gutter, contrary to all that was in me, and... I don't even know how to pick up a cat, but I'm allergic and I despise them. But I, I think I just grabbed the tuft of hair on its back and there was someone up there to retrieve the cat and then I had to climb out myself. So an act of kindness toward a cat uh, was one of my responsibilities at my church. And then another thing, the weather's different. So in the winter it snows and that was an adjustment for me to get used to that. Um, I typically like go to my car when I have the right amount of minutes to drive to where I need to go, not factoring in time to like de-ice the window or heat the car up or anything like that. And one time, turned the, my truck on and I was like, oh man, I gotta go grab something from inside. And actually we had this like platform like this and our front door was right here. And so I come like running from, running from my truck and I go, and I like take a step. Actually, it was with it was with this foot, and the the this block, this step, it's just like a block of ice. It is just a a block of slick ice. And so I was just like, boom! I put all my weight, and I just like flew this way, and absolutely ate it, just hard. And my kids were in the car, just watching me. Like, what are you doing? Um, so. Those were two fun stories from Indiana. Church was different, weather's different, other different stuff too, but let's talk about the canon, okay? Maybe there'll be some funny Indiana stories that come up in the discussion of the canon, but um, as we're thinking about this topic, I want you to um, think with me about board games. Anyone play board games? One time, some people, all right. One time I was playing board games with Pastor Lucas, before I knew he was a stickler for rules. And so I foolishly, foolishly got into a debate with him about the rules of the game we were playing, which just so happened to be Settlers of Catan. 
So I'm like, no, dude, the sheep, whatever. I can't remember what the, what the debate was. And um, we go back and forth, and pretty much it ends by him saying, well, let's look it up in the rule book. And I'm like, okay. Like, I, I think I, I'm right. So bust out the rule book, no problem. And he's like, but first, we need, we need some, some steaks on the table. This was after Revival 11. And if you were at Revival 11, you'll remember it was called Theophobia. And we played a game called the Wheel of Phobia, where poor victims spun the wheel and it landed on some terrible thing you had to do that most people were afraid of. So we had purchased for revival ministry purposes uh, a snake and a tarantula that we still had in our possession after like a month after revival. And, and so he's like, all right, before we look up the rules, um, if I'm right, then Rosie and Oscar, the, the uh, tarantula and the snake, are going to go in your office and you're going to have to figure out how to get rid of them. I'm like, okay, easy. If I'm right, they're going in yours. He was 100% right. And because uh, he has the rule book memorized because he's crazy like that. So Pastor Lucas, don't mess with him when it comes to rules. We deferred to the rule book as the source of authority. And he was right. So then I had this, these wild animals in my office and people would come in. I had them like stacked along the back wall and people would sit down and there would be like animals behind their backs and um, it was weird. It took a while to get rid of them. I don't know. The rule book, though, I, I tell you that story because the rule book played an important role. Um, when it comes to how the game is played, who wins, how you win, and everything in between, the rule book is designed to specify. And if you're playing a game, you should decide up front which rule book you're going to use. So preferably, if you're playing Settlers of Catan, you would use the Settlers of Catan rule book, right? We can agree this is the rule book for this game. There may be disagreements about the interpretation of the rules, but the rule book is the rule book. For playing Monopoly, there's the Monopoly rule book, the instructions. Maybe some interpretations about what you know, some nuances of the game, but at the end of the day, the Monopoly rule book is for Monopoly, the Settlers rule book is for Settlers, and we agree on that. When it comes to life, there isn't one agreed upon rule book that everyone goes by. There's actually a lot of different rule books, if we can call them that, that people look to as the rule book for life. I was at this interfaith breakfast on Thursday, just a couple days ago. I think someone had sent an invitation to Pastor Mike to attend this interfaith breakfast. And I ended up going on Thursday morning to represent Compass Bible Church, uh, which I was glad to do. And it was, it was interesting. There was a room full, I don't know, maybe 200 people. They were all there in the name of compassion and agreement with each other from interfaith perspectives. And so I sat next to um, a Muslim, um, and uh, he's the equivalent of the pastor of the mosque in Mission Viejo. 
and him and I had just a, a, some conversations, and there was a Catholic priest at my table, and then there was a woman from the community who loves the idea of interfaith compassion. That was the four, well, those four people, and then me and my wife, that was my table. And there was like 20 such tables around the room, and the, the, there were six speakers. Each spa- speaker was from a different faith. And they stood up, and they said what their rule book says about compassion. And at the end of the day, we all, um, we all appreciated, or the design of the, the morning was that we would all appreciate all these different perspectives on compassion. And I sat there and I thought, man, this is just so interesting. Uh, this, this guy next to me has devoted his life to studying a book that he considers the rule book for life. It's called the Quran. The Catholic priest who's to the right of me um, has elected to study for the course of his lifetime, the, the book that I have, except his book is longer than mine. And I'll explain more on that later. So he has a different book of sorts. And there's all these different people in the room that have a different rule book for life. So it's not simply a matter of, we have disagreements on the interpretation of the rules in this life that we find ourselves there's disagreement about what the rule book even is. And that's what I want to talk to you about here tonight, is what is the rule book for life? Can we know which book is the right book? And then, furthermore, when I say which book is the right book, and I'm a a pastor here at Compass, you know my answer already. I'm going to say the Bible is the right book, which you know is comprised of 66 individual books. How do we know that these 66 books that make up the Bible are the 66 books from God? They are divinely inspired. They are God's rule book for life. Who chose these books? Why did they choose these books? Why did they not choose other books? Can any additional books be added? These are all really important questions. And these are all questions that we're going to try to answer tonight in this topic of the canon, the 66 books of the Bible. It's pretty obvious why this is important. But I will go ahead and spell out a couple of reasons why. Um, I think it's a really good idea that we take a weekend here in Third Nine to talk about it. Because the rule book, as I'm calling the, the Bible for life, it contains the rules. It tells you how to win. If you continue with the board game analogy with me, This is the right book to tell you how to play the game, how to live in this life, and when the game is over, who wins and who loses. That's what I think is at stake here. How you go about your entire life and what happens at the end of it. Just that. It's a pretty big deal. I also think it's important because your edification and obedience to this book, I think would be hindered 
if you weren't totally convinced that these 66 books were the right books, that this really is the Word of God. And the Bible's pretty clear, just to add a third reason why this is important, uh, the Bible's pretty clear that it's a major problem to add or subtract to this book. The Old Testament gives a severe warning. The New Testament gives a severe warning. Getting this book wrong. Adding or subtracting to it. So, it's worth our attention. It's worth your thought. It's worth your discussion after this. And at the end of the day here, I want you to have confidence that the 66-book Bible you hold in your hands is the Word of God. That's what I want for you tonight. I want you to walk away with confidence that this book I have is the Word of God. And I can consider this the correct rule book for life, above all the other options that are out there. So, first I'm going to start with a definition. A definition. I've said the word canon. I want to explain to you what I mean. I don't have any sort of PowerPoint, by the way. I'm sorry. And this feels a whole lot like a lecture. Just the, the nature of the topics. I, I did my best to try to put this together for us. But um, a definition of the word canon. So if you're taking notes, I'd write it down like this. It's a collection of the books that are inspired by God. There's a simple definition for us for the word canon, a collection of the books that are inspired by God. There's a finite number of these books. I don't think God has inspired all books, but only some books. And it's through those particular books, not more, not less, that God chose to communicate to us. So that's the canon it's the collection of books that are inspired by God. Canonization is the process of recognizing certain books that are inspired by God. So that's another term for you. Canonization is the process of recognizing certain books that are inspired by God. That's worded really carefully. The process of recognizing certain books that are inspired by God. It's not... It is not appointing certain books to be inspired by God. So the key word here in canonization is recognizing which books are of God and which books are not. It's not deciding or appointing, but recognizing so, for example, it's the difference between recognizing children, um, which children belong to which parents based on their DNA, rather than appointing certain children to parents based on their anatomy or their behavior or whatever. See what a massive difference that is? Here's these five children in the room. We're going to recognize who their parents are by looking at their DNA and saying, these children, I recognize, go with those parents over there, as opposed to stepping back and saying, you, the way you're acting, I think you go over there. You, the way you're acting, I think you go over there. Massive difference. So when it comes to how we ended up with these 66 books, it was a process of recognizing 
which books were divinely inspired by God. And so that happened at the time of the recognition and has continued to happen until this day when we have this book that I think we can open up and recognize to be unique and authoritative and inspired by God. When you read your Bible, hopefully you see a difference. You sense a difference and you even experience in your Christian life a difference between reading this book and reading, um, you know, uh, Go Dog Go or Beowulf or your textbook for science or any other book. This book is living and active. It, it has an impact on your heart, your soul, your mind. And hopefully you can testify personally uh, that these books are unique and you recognize them. Okay, so I want to talk about the Old Testament, how the Old Testament was recognized. And when we're done with that, I want to talk about how the New Testament was recognized. And then afterward, we have an exercise that we're going to do. That's right. That's right. We have an exercise that we're going to do to see. We're going we're gonna to apply these things that we talk about in real time. I'm excited about it. So the Old Testament. How is the Old Testament recognized? So there's different texts that we have. There's an important word, uh, term for you. And it, it, when it comes to the Old Testament canon, the Masoretic text is an important term for you. It's abbreviated MT. You could just put that down, MT. The Masoretic text contains all of the 39 books of the Old Testament. It lumps some together and some prophets are together. And, um, but it's the same 39 books of the Old Testament that you have in your Bible today. And it has been that way since the last book of the Old Testament was written. These books were recognized as they were written as authoritative from God and they were meticulously and carefully copied and preserved because they were recognized by their um, immediate audience to be authoritative, inspired from God inspired by God. And so this Masoretic text, whenever we find a copy, a manuscript, um, we, we're, we're doing um, archaeology, that's the word. We, we uncover a manuscript and, and we find it's, um, it's an Old Testament manuscript. And if it's in the, the Masoretic text, it's been carefully copied and it's the, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament Bible. There was also a book called the Septuagint, and this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That project began in the third century BC. And so sometimes when we do archaeology and we uncover a manuscript, we find, oh, this is written in Greek, and it's a translation of the Hebrew Masoretic text. It's a Septuagint. It contains all of those 39 books of the Old Testament when we find complete ones. And it also contains books of the Apocrypha. So that's another text that you need to know when it comes to the Old Testament. The Apocrypha, those were writings that were basically happening during the intertestamental period. So after the last prophet 
There is this, these silent years, 400 years before Jesus came, right? You're familiar with this time. During that time period, there were books that were continuing to be written. And there were books that were written in the, uh, in the Jewish traditions. And they told stories about God and for devotional purposes. And some of them, people began to think, man, th- these books belong in the Bible too. And so some people began putting the Apocrypha into the, uh, inspi- into the, the Old Testament, 39 books, in, uh, canon at the time. Uh, and the Catholic Church to this day considers most of the Apocrypha to be canonical. So that's the, um, that, that's the Apocrypha. Protestants, and the reason your, your Bible, if you, if you have a, one like mine, the reason it doesn't have the Apocrypha in it is for s- several reasons. One, the Jews who wrote them never accepted them into their canon, the Masoretic text. There are some portions of the Apocrypha that contain factual and theological errors, There's one part of the Apocrypha that even says basically the prophets or, or the communication from God has ceased in 1 Maccabees 9.27. It says, such as has not been since the time that the prophets ceased to appear from among them. So here's this reference in one of the Apocryphal books that the prophets and the time of the prophets has ceased, a recognition of this intertestamental period. Josephus is a guy who is a first century uh, basically historian, not uh, most, mostly a secular historian. He did not consider the Apocrypha to be authoritative like the Old Testament was. And lastly, the New Testament never quotes an Apocryphal text as Scripture like it does with the Old Testament all over the place. One example is uh, 1 Timothy 5.18 where um, Paul says, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, quoting from Deuteronomy, and the laborer deserves his wages, quoting from Leviticus. Basically what I'm saying here is that the New Testament all the time quotes the Old Testament as scripture, as a word from the Lord, as a divine book. And it never quotes a book from the Apocrypha as scripture. So, the 39 books of the Old Testament that we have today were recognized as books from God. And as soon as the law was written, the first five books of the Bible, it was recognized. I mean, Moses would go up on the mountain and he would come back with words from the Lord. Like this, there was revelation that was happening and Moses was writing it down. He wrote the first five books of the Bible and the law was immediately recognized to be canonical. And Joshua 1.7, there's a reference to uh, the books of Moses being from the Lord. So they were recognized. And then as prophets and historians and psalmists were writing words from the Lord, they were recognized as authoritative. This was the way God was communicating with his people. And in Luke 24, why don't you turn there with me? Luke 24 We have Jesus here in the New Testament affirming 
that the books of the Old Testament are Scripture. Look at Luke 24, verse 44. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, Jesus speaking here, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so this was a way for Jesus to refer to all three parts of the Old Testament, the Masoretic text, the 39 books, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Right there with those three references, he's referring to the complete, all the different parts of the Old Testament. So Jesus affirms these 39 books. By the way, I keep saying it, I keep saying it over and over again, that um, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, so maybe you'll just remember that by the time we're done in here. But if you are prone to forget things like I am, then maybe this will help you. When it comes to remembering the books, the number of books in the Bible, you know there's 66. So if you can do math, um, that's helpful. But there's three letters in the word old, O-L-D. And then I think there's nine letters in the word testament. Okay, see that? Three and nine. Old Testament, 39. Okay. That's for free. And then if you multiply nine times three, 27, which is how many books are in the New Testament. You add those two together, you get 66. All right. Should we just close in prayer now? All right. Um, so you got the 39 books of the Old Testament that were recognized as authoritative from the Lord. The New Testament. The New Testament. Okay. The apostles started to die or get to the end of their lives and began writing their teachings down for people. The teaching of the apostles was recognized to be authoritative from the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says this, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So the teaching of the apostles was accepted as authoritative from God, and then the apostles were going on to write their words down in book form. And people recognized their books as authoritative words from the Lord. In AD 367, there was a guy named Athanasius who wrote out a list of the books of the New Testament, all 27 of them, because nine times three is 27. Athanasius wrote down this list, and that is the first official list we have of the 27 books of the New Testament. Now, they've been recognized as the Bible from the time they were written until today, but the list was codified or put down in a book 
in officially in uh, 367 AD. And then there was some a couple councils after that that affirmed together these are the 27 books. That 28th book is not. The 29th book over there is not. These are the 27. Now some people stumble with this and they think. Um, that's kind of a long gap. If Paul was writing letters in AD 40, it's not until 367 that we have a formal list. What was going on for 300 years there? Well, I think what was happening is the, the word of God was being communicated verbally through these apostles. Then it was written down between 45 and 100 AD. And then between 100 and 200 AD, they were collected and copied and read. And then between 200 and 300, they were examined and compared with each other. And between 300 and 400, people were able to say, clearly these are uh, the inspired books of the canon and these are not. And um, Christians were the ones, and, and Christianity was the reason we created the Codex, which is a book that looks like this as opposed to a scroll. Before the codex, you would just take all the different scrolls and put them in the shelf, and then you'd pull the one out that you needed. As soon as Christians started printing books that looked like this, instead of like scrolls, people had to start making decisions, which ones are included in the book and which ones are not. And so it was kind of like circumstances forced over time people to decide which belong in the book and which do not. So all of that, I think, explains why there's a gap between the writing and the official list that we have. Maybe there's a list out there in a pot somewhere that we haven't uncovered that's like 200 years even older than 367. I don't know. There's a bunch of passages I have for you that prove the internal testimony where the, the New Testament refers to other passages of the New Testament as scripture. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into them. You can jot these down if you're interested. 2 Peter 3.16, Paul affirms Peter's, I'm sorry, Peter affirms Paul's teaching as scripture. Uh, in John 14, 26, Jesus promises the disciples that the Holy Spirit will teach them what they need to know and bring them to remembrance all the things that Christ said so that they could act accurately and authoritatively produce scripture. Um, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, a New Testament passage is placed side by side with an Old Testament passage and both are affirmed as scripture. So there's all this internal testimony. So, with that being said, I want to do an exercise with you and basically show you or do together with you some of the things we just talked about. So if you guys could pass those pieces of paper out, what I have printed for you is a book of the Apocrypha. You remember what the Apocrypha is? It was the books that were written in an intertestamental period. The Catholic Church puts the Apocrypha in their Bibles. And so... This is an, I say it's an entire book. It's, it's just front and back of one sheet of paper. So maybe the, the length of a short epistle. What I want to do with you is read this book in its entirety, which takes like five minutes, and have you look at it and tell me if it looks like scripture. It's called Bell and the Dragon. It sounds like it could make a good Disney movie just by the title. Um, it's not Belle like a princess. It's a short name for Baal or Baal and the dragon. And basically, 
it's claimed that this is the last chapter of the book of Daniel, which if you have a Bible in your hand, you should be able to open up to the Old Testament and find the um, one of the books of the Old Testament canon, the book of Daniel. This is claimed to be the final chapter. I'm going to read it out loud. Follow along with me. When King Astyages was laid to rest with his ancestors, Cyrus the Persian succeeded to his kingdom. Daniel was a companion of the king and was the most honored of all of his friends. Now the Babylonians had an idol called Bel, and every day they provided for it 12 bushels of choice flour and 40 sheep and six measures of wine. The king revered it and went every day to worship it, but Daniel worshiped his own God. So the king said to him, why do you not worship Bel? He answered, because I do not revere idols made with hands, but the living God who created heaven and earth and has dominion over all living creatures. So the king said to him, do you not think that Bel is a living God? Do you not see how much he eats and drinks every day? And Daniel laughed and said, Do not be deceived, O king, for this thing is only clay inside and bronze outside, and it never ate or drank anything. The king was angry and called the priests of Bel and said to them, If you do not tell me who is eating these provisions, you shall die. But if you prove that Bel is eating them, Daniel shall die, because he has spoken blasphemy against Bel. Daniel said to the king, let it be done as you have said. Now there were 70 priests of Bel beside their wives and children. So the king went with Daniel into the temple of Bel. The priests of Bel said, See, we are now going outside. You yourself, O king, set out the food and prepare the wine and shut the door and seal it with your signet. When you return in the morning, if you do not find that Bel has eaten it all, we will die. Otherwise, Daniel will, who is telling lies about us. They were unconcerned, for beneath the table they had made a hidden entrance through which they used to go in regularly and consume the provisions. After they had gone out, the king set out the food for Bel. Then Daniel ordered his servants to bring ashes, and they scattered them throughout the whole temple in the presence of the king alone. Then they went out, shut the door, and sealed it with the king's signet, and he departed. During the night, the priests came as usual, with their wives and children, and they ate and drank everything. Early in the morning, the king rose and came, and Daniel with him. The king said, Are the seals unbroken, Daniel? He answered, They are unbroken, O king. As soon as the doors were open, the king looked at the table and shouted in a loud voice, You are great, O Bel, and in you there is no deceit at all. But Daniel laughed and restrained the king from going in. Look at the floor, he said, and notice whose footprints are there. The king said, I see the footprints of men and women and children. Then the king was enraged and he arrested the priests and their wives and children. They showed them the secret doors through which they had used to enter and consume that which was on the table. Therefore, the king put them to death and gave Bel over to Daniel, who destroyed it and its temple. Now in that place, there was a great dragon which the Babylonians revered. The king said to Daniel, you cannot deny that this is a living God, so worship him. Daniel said, I worship the Lord my God, for he is the living God. But give me permission, O king, and I will kill the dragon without sword or club. The king said, I give you permission. Then Daniel took pitch, fat, and hair, and boiled them together and made cakes, which he fed to the dragon. The dragon ate them and burst open. Then Daniel said, See what you have been worshiping? 
When the Babylonians heard about it, they were very indignant and conspired against the king, saying, The king has become a Jew. He has destroyed Bel and killed the dragon and slaughtered the priests. Go to the king, they said, or going to the king, they said, Hand Daniel over to us, or else we will kill you and your household. The king saw that they were pressing him hard, and under compulsion, he handed Daniel over to them. They threw Daniel into the lion's den, and he was there for six days. There were seven lions in the den, and every day they had been giving two human bodies and two sheep, but now they were given nothing so that they would devour Daniel. Now the, prof, the prophet Habakkuk was in Judea, and he had made stew and had broken bread into a bowl and was going into the field uh, to take it to the reapers. But the angel of the Lord said to Habakkuk, take the food that you have to Babylon, to Daniel, in the lion's den. Habakkuk said, sir, I have never seen Babylon, and I know, th- know nothing about the den. Then the angel of the Lord took him by the crown of his head and carried him by his hair. With the speed of the wind, he set him down in Babylon right over the den. Then Habakkuk shouted, Daniel, Daniel, take the food that God has sent you. Daniel said, you have remembered me, O God, and have not forsaken those who love you. So Daniel got up and ate. The angel of God immediately returned Habakkuk to his own place. On the seventh day, the king came to mourn for Daniel. When he came to the den, he looked in And there sat Daniel. The king shouted with a loud voice, You are great, O Lord, the God of Daniel, and there is no other besides you. Then he pulled Daniel out and threw into the den those who had attempted his destruction, and they were instantly eaten before his eyes. And you'll see down the footnote at the bottom, the Holy Bible, the New Revised Standard Version. Um, So this is included in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. And um, uh, Catholic... Roman Catholic believers, uh, Roman Catholics believe that this book is uh, canonical. So, having read it in its entirety, you can now say that you've read an entire book of the Apocrypha. You've read parts of the Apocrypha, and I want to ask you a couple questions. How did this book? How did this sound as I was reading it? Did it sound like scripture? There were probably parts of it that maybe sounded, you know, like there's certain parts where maybe the king um, confesses the, the greatness of God, Yahweh, or I don't know, maybe bits and pieces here and there that, that look like they could fit. But then there's other parts of it that look strange, don't they? The dragon. Some people have a problem with the dragon. I mean, maybe it was some sort of a giant lizard or Komodo dragon or dinosaur-ish looking thing. I don't know what it was. Um, he, he does make some sort of a potion, some sort of, you know, concoction and gives it to the animal and then it explodes. It's kind of weird. Um, there's, well, I don't want to say too much about it. What else? I mean, is the book... Is it theologically accurate? Does it look like the rest of Scripture? Does it agree with the rest of Scripture? Does it seem that God is emphasized or is Daniel's shrewdness and cleverness really highlighted here? Seems like Daniel's shrewdness is really highlighted. And by the way, if you were to open up to the Old Testament and read the book of Daniel... He, he begins and ends in the first person. He, in the first person, he's telling this first person account 
of his visions, what he himself saw. Now here we have, very much so, a third person. Daniel did this, Daniel did that. It's a story about Daniel. It looks and feels a whole lot different than the book of Daniel that we have in our Old Testament, right? There's some contradictions when we read the account of the Daniel in the lion's den. Maybe this is a second lion's den encounter. Um, if it's referring to the one that we have in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, there's problems. First of all, it's a different king who throws him in to begin with. And there's a lot of other contradictions between these two stories. Are there any passages that you're aware of in the New Testament that refer to this story or this encounter? And say, oh, you remember in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, when Daniel made a concoction out of fat and hair and, uh, what was the other thing? Uh, pitch. There's no, to my knowledge, there's no reference in the New Testament to any of these accounts here. By the way, the external testimony here, I should have told you up front. This book, we cannot find a Hebrew original for this book. So Daniel probably wrote the book when he was alive in like 530, 540 BC-ish, when he was alive during the time of King Cyrus. Um, yet we can't find this book attached to any of those original writings, and we can't find this book at all in Hebrew. We can only find it in Greek, which, remember the Septuagint? That was written in like 250 BC. So 300 years later, after Daniel was dead, we have um, the Septuagint, except the, the oldest copy of this book that we can find, the oldest Septuagint copy of this book that we can find, dates to the 9th century AD. That's a really long time after Daniel presumably wrote it, right? All that to say, it looks different, it feels different, it seems to contradict. Um, I think you, as an astute reader, can recognize the difference between this book and the book of Daniel and other books of the Bible. And now, when you talk to people about the canon, you can say, it happened. Here's how we came up with the 66 books of the Bible. The church and the people of God historically have recognized the 66 books that we have to be inspired by God. And I can tell you that I've read the 66 books of the Bible, and there's something different about these books. In fact, I've even read portions of the Apocrypha, and they look different to me. I've also read Beowulf, and I've also read my science textbook, I've also read other books, and there's something unique and authoritative about these, and I recognize that. So no one is sitting here saying, um, these are the books that God wrote, these are not. We're simply recognizing which ones are from him. That's what I hope you remember tonight. There's some discussion questions for you. I would love for you guys to react to your reading of this and uh, share in your groups how, what you thought about this. Um, 
but that, that's it for now. So I'll pray. Let's pray. God, thank you for our opportunity to study your book. And we're thankful, God, that we, we can recognize it to be from you. Help us as we think about these things to do so in a way that's um, clear and helpful and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.